Thanks, Dave. And I want to say again that it's good to have Mark and Katie back and looking forward to hearing a fuller report of the Lord's work in Serbia this coming Wednesday, and I hope you'll take his invitation seriously. And if you just come to that, don't feel like you're, you have to come back the next Wednesday. Of course, we'd love to have you come back, but we'd rather have you enjoy that even if you don't come regularly. Please, please be blessed by that. I'm also thankful for the pastoral prayer this morning, and if I could just make these comments, I trust, onto edification. You probably realize as you were engaging in that prayer that <clears throat> Pastor Mark was reading it because he wrote it. And we might have a kind of reflex mentality about that, say, well, how could a written prayer be genuine and warm and spiritual? Well, the Holy Spirit guides people in writing prayers just as much as he guides them in praying extemporaneously. And sometimes we even pray brighter. And I, I would encourage you all to write some prayers just for your own personal communion with God. It makes you so serious and thoughtful about what you're thanking him for and asking for. The other thing I hope you noticed is that he exemplified again, which we all want to do, learn how to do, is to pray through Scripture. That entire prayer was guided by what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer. Um, let's keep working at how to pray through Scripture because uh, there's nothing we can bring to God better than his own word in terms of what we thank him for and what we beseech him for. I do want to give uh, personal greetings to our dear sister Nancy Bluer in Plano. She's very faithful. And to uh, Bob and Regina Saffel, who watch our service every Lord's Day morning, and any others who are watching via internet. Now, uh, Dave just read for us the portion of Scripture that I'm going to try to open up to us today, and I hope some practical, meaningful way. My verses, as you saw, are verses 4 through 10. And this is the technical word for today. This is the one that you can take home and try to remember, although it's not really that important. It's maybe more fun. These uh, seven verses constitute what Bible students sometimes call a pericope. 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 It's just a nice word. It means, etymologically, it means a cutting around something. It's a section in and of itself. Now, when John wrote this letter, there were no paragraphs. In fact, there were no periods at the end of what we have as sentences. But it's very helpful for these things to be divided for us. They're not always right. In fact, today, when you come to verse 10, and this may surprise uh, whoever's preaching next, is it you, Pastor Mark? Um, this, this pericope ends in, toward the end of verse 10, just jumping ahead. Those last seven or eight or ten words, nor is the one who does not love his brother. They don't belong to that pericope because he's launching in right there to the whole new section on the social test. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but consciously and purposely. The social test 
of true conversion, which is love for the brothers. So that's just an example, but the pericope for today is verses 4 through most of verse 10. And I want to put um, the whole series in perspective just for a moment, get back at uh, 30,000 feet, and just remind all of you of John's fourfold purpose in writing this letter. You see it on the screen. He gives these four tests and introduced, or gives these four reasons for writing the book, let me put it that way, and introduces it almost verbatim each time, I am writing these things to you so that. You, we'll, we won't take time now to look at verse 1, verse, or chapter 1, 4, or 2, 1, or 2, 26, or 5, 13, but every one of them begins with that. I'm writing these things to you so that. Well, a reader wants to say, whoa, that's helpful. He's telling us why he wrote this letter. That's good. That's going to give me a head start. And when we come to the fourth one, we see that he wants us to have a biblical assurance of our salvation. So it's to promote joy, to prevent sin, to protect truth, to provide assurance. And with regard to the fourth one, providing assurance, I just want to point this out to you. It may have been pointed out at the beginning. John's gospel, not this, the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, ends by telling us in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that Jesus did many other miracles than these that are not recorded, but these are written so that you may know that Jesus is, in the, Christ, is the Christ and so that by believing in him, you might have eternal life. So the Gospel of John was written to help us have eternal life. But this little letter was written to us to help us know that we have eternal life. And, and I will ask you just to turn quickly to chapter 5, verse 15, then we'll come right back to 3. Look at 5 or verse 13, 513. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, those of you who profess to be Christians, that, so that, this is the purpose statement to come. I write these things that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so, he gives us three, what I would call, categorical tests. There is the moral test, which is how we live. There's the social test, how we love. And there's the doctrinal test, what we believe. Or if you really want to make it sound the same, how we live, how we love, how we think. What we really think, the Word of God teaches those are the three categorical tests that we find in this little letter. Now, today's passage, my pericope, is going to focus on the moral test. But just before we look at it, I want you to appreciate sort of the way that John wrote this letter. And on the slide, 
you will see an illustration. And thanks for the help of Jeremy Bennett on that. I, I drew it out, and he said, I can make that look better. <laughs> he said, that is the most terrible thing I've ever seen in my life. No, he didn't say that. He's a, he's a nice guy. And, and by the way, he's the one who uh, prepared the little, the little questionnaire today and the outline for the sermon and the questions. Uh, I mean, I gave them to him, but I thank you, Jeremy, for helping you so much. But what am I trying to point out about this letter? I'm, I'm wanting you, actually, to, to be really honest with you. My wife keeps saying to me, Ted, don't say to be really honest, because that implies that most of the time you're not. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of like I'm teaching my grandchildren, don't say, I promise, I promise, I promise. Jesus said, let your yes be yes. Did you or did you not do it? Yes, I did it. No, I didn't. I promise. Don't add that. And so I shouldn't really say, to be honest, I should say to be candid with you. My passage, and I think generally all of these passages are challenging in terms of homiletics. Homiletics is how you outline. It's how you present your materials. It's you know, trying to figure out how can I best package this for the, for the best understanding of the people of God. And I'm going to confess to you that verses 4 through 10 are very difficult, at least for me. They're, they're not difficult. I, this is the last time I'll embarrass Mark, but uh, we just happen to know that he has this gift. He can look at a passage and quite quickly say, oh, here's how it divides up. It divides up very clearly. And when you're done, say, man, it really does. How did you see that? It's a gift. And later he'll tell me, here's what you should have done with it. Uh, no, he won't. He's a nice guy. But he would agree, Pastor Thad would agree, Pastor Keith Withrow would agree, Pastor Keith and Maddie would agree, that when, you, when you're working through this little letter, it's, it's often difficult to sort it out and to be able to present it in a real organized way. But because it's, it's circular, I guess I should go like this for you, from uh, left to right. It's circular, and he, he, in one section he'll be, taught, he'll be presenting a moral argument, a moral test, and then the first thing you know, he's moved into love, like this very verse goes into love, the last part of verse 10, and that, that goes for quite a section, and then the next thing you know, he'll be talking about what we believe and whether or not we are truly Christian based upon what we believe. And then the next thing you know, he'll be back to a moral argument, and then he'll be to a social argument, and then he'll be to a doctrinal argument. And I don't mean to imply that they're always in that order, moral, social, doctrinal. I'm just trying to illustrate a point. Those are the three categorical tests, and he just goes, to, goes through them and comes back to them and goes through them and comes back to them, and he goes all through the letter. And in this same pericope, he actually, speaking about the moral argument, says something, and then he says something else, and then he comes back to the first something, and then he says something else, and then he may come back to the second something, and that's why it's very challenging. So I just want you to realize that that's the way the Holy Spirit um, led him to write, and I'm sure that's rooted in his, in, in the psyche that John had, and someday maybe we can ask him about that. Did you ever think about writing your letters so that they'd be more easily organized for preaching? Um, 
But God was superintending. That's something we've learned in our class on systematic theology. Something supernatural happens when the writers of scriptures are writing. They are using their own mind, their own personality, their own experience, their own burdens, and pouring out their hearts, and yet every single word that they write, right down to the little definite article, the, T-H-E, and the indefinite article, A, although there isn't one in the Greek for A, but every single word was guided by the Holy Spirit. So, I, I mean, John doesn't really need to be, apolog- uh, uh, t- we don't have to be apologetic about this, and he doesn't have to apologize. I'm just saying it's a little difficult sometimes. So, now, why did I go into all that? Because, and here's going to be the, the surprise, you have in your hands this outline. The essence of sin, the danger of deception, the fact that a true Christian does not, does not, and cannot, I would emphasize those two words, does not and cannot keep on sinning. The reasons why A true Christian does not and cannot keep on sinning. That's number four. And finally, some concluding cautions and comforts. I I thought, well, I can't go through this. I can't organize it the way I want. It just seems to me that these are the things that come out of the text. What sin is, the fact that true Christians can't keep sinning, the reasons why they can't keep sinning, and so forth. And then when I got really down to it, you know what? I didn't like it. And as late as this morning, and I've studied this thing all week, actually beginning last week. I've read commentary after commentary, and I've listened to wonderful sermons. I've listened to Piper on this text. I listened to Paul Washer on this text. I listened to John MacArthur on this text. I listened to a man by the name of Eric Alexander on this text and a couple of other guys. And you know what? Every one of them treated it differently. And yet they all made the same major points. And all the commentaries treated it differently. So what I've decided to do, and I hope this will somehow be blessed of the Lord and prove not to be the wrong thing. I've decided in a sense to sort of chuck the outline. It's on the screen. I want you to see it. It's in your hands if you have a handout. And by the way, develop the habit of getting the handout so that you can really follow along, pay attention, and, and take notes. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Here's what I'm going to try to do, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I am going to simply, literally go verse by verse by verse, these seven verses. I'm just going to try to explain. Here's what he's saying in verse 4. Maybe make a few applications. Then I'm going to go to verse 5. Here's what he's saying. And all I would ask you to do is plug in to that outline the stuff that you see which would fall under the essence of sin, the danger of deception, the fact that true Christians do not and cannot keep sinning and so forth. So that's what we're going to do. Don't be surprised then. I've told you that I'm not really going to follow that particular outline. And yet I think maybe it will still be useful. So here we go. Let's take a look at uh, verse 1. It's so good that we read it. Um, When you look at this section of Scripture, you uh, are immediately impressed with how many times he uses either the word sin or the word sins or the word sinning. And this is a suggestion on how to study your Bible. When you're looking at a section of Scripture and you think about it and you analyze it, what does he seem to be concerned about? 
hopefully before you even ask the question, it's going to dawn on you. Say, wow, he seems to really be concerned about sin. I mean, he uses the word sinning in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning. And then he says also practices sin. And then in verse 5, he said, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no, in him there is no sin. And then in verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And then in the same verse, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. When you come to verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And later in that verse, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then when you come to verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. That's how many times he uses the You don't have to be a great Bible scholar or a theologian or an exegete to read that passage and say, wow, this is going to have a lot to say about sin. Sin must be an important subject to consider. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. Ten times he uses the word sin or sinning. So we're going to develop a bit of a theology about sin and our relationship to sin in this sermon. So let's just look at verse 4 then. Everyone, and notice the everyone, I'm just going to point this out too, you're going to see a lot of these sort of all-inclusive words. I'll point them out as we come to them. And verse 4 starts with everyone, not most people, everyone, everyone without exception who makes a practice, who makes a practice, and I might as well just clear this away right now, because this passage, in, in one sense, if you read it sort of carelessly and thoughtlessly, you're going to conclude that Christians don't sin. And that's really how some people have gone wrong on the whole doctrine of sin and who have come to believe in what is called perfectionism, sinless perfection. There are people that believe that. John Wesley believed that. Perfectionism. We believe in that. We just believe we'll be sinlessly perfect only when we die or when Jesus comes back and we're glorified. So I want you to understand that one of the dilemmas in this passage, if you're thinking, will be, wait a minute, he seems to be saying Christians don't sin. That's not what he's saying. If he was saying, then we really would have a dilemma. Because in the first part of the book, and I think maybe Pastor Mark preached on this, John says, if we say, and by the way, look for all the if we says. Have some fun with this passage. Look for all the if we says. I I found all of them. I, I read through the whole book several times this week just to get the big picture. If we say, if we say, if we say, and sometimes you end up, we lie. If you say this, you're a liar. How many times John used the word liar is actually astounding in this little letter. He wasn't afraid to say, if you do such and such or say such and such, you are a liar. So um, I just want you to notice here that sin is a, is a, a deep concern of the 
Apostle John, and he's not saying Christians don't sin. When he uses the word, so I'm clearing this up now, although I'll reiterate it, if you practice sin, if you, quote, keep on sinning, those are, those are the same thing. Practice sin, keep on sinning. There's no difference. And the whole point of this message is, in one sense, if you practice sin, as opposed to just struggle with sin, you are not a true Christian. If you keep on sinning in the way you have always sinned through your life, you are not a Christian. Do Christians sin? Yes. Do they sin the way they used to sin? No. A death blow has been dealt to sin. It still remains, but it doesn't reign. It's still present, but it's no longer president. It's, we, we still have sin in us, but we no longer live in sin. There's a distinction. It's very clear. There's a fundamental difference in the relationship of a true Christian to sin than the relationship he or she once had to sin. So when the Bible says, if you keep on sinning, if you practice sin, John is talking about a person who habitually and reflexively and continually gives himself or herself over to sin and indulges sin and basically is characterized by a life of sin. We're all sinners in this room this morning and anyone who may be watching on the internet. But there's two kinds of sinners in this room and listening to me. There are those who hate their sin and are struggling with it and are trusting Christ for it and are making progress slowly in conquering it and there are those who just have given themselves over to sin and they're not saved. And I'm really worried about some who are in this gathering this morning who fit that category. I have I have specific people in mind. The Holy Spirit does as well, and he knows better than I. But if you, this is, this is the point of the sermon. If you think you can legitimately call yourself a Christian and keep on sinning the way you have always been sinning, you are deceived. That is, in a sense, the whole point and the opposite side of that point is if you flip it over people who by the grace of God practice righteousness are truly righteous by the grace of God and they have seen God and they do know God that's the other side of the same so quickly now, and, and honestly, all that I said is going to enable me to pick up speed here because I've given you sort of the whole thrust of the passage just in these introductory remarks. But verse 5, let's just notice that what we have in verse 5 is the essence of sin or, if you will, a definition of sin. That's why I put it in my outline. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. If you are a sinner 
You are a lawbreaker. And John is telling us that that really is what sin actually is. So see the last part of verse 5? Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And you could just sort of insert the words because, even though that wasn't inspired, but it's surely the meaning. Because sin is lawlessness. That's what sin is. Sin is lawlessness. Now, I want to really point something out here. There are other words and other descriptions of sin in the New Testament, and they're legitimate. For example, missing the mark is a definition of sin. Trespassing is a definition of sin. Transgressing is a definition of sin. But you know what's at the bottom of all of those things? Before you can trespass, before you can transgress, before you can miss the mark, you know what you have to do? You have to either stand up or stay sitting where you are or laying where you are, and you have to raise a flinched fist in the face of God and say, no, no law for me from you. No, no law. That is exactly what the Greek word means there. Sin is lawlessness. The Greek word is anomia. And the little prefix A is a negative prefix, like you say. Theism is the belief of God. If you put an A before it, it's atheism. It's not believing in God. And if you use the word law and you put the word no in front of it, that's what anomia means. No law. I am a law unto myself. Don't tell me, God, what to do. Don't tell me what not to do. I will be my own lawmaker, says every person who's still in the bondage of sin. And I want to say something carefully, and I thought about whether I should say it or not, and I, I think it's appropriate. But I'm just going to put it in this crass way. Living in sin and living as a rebellious sinner who says to God, no, you are not going to tell me what to do and what not to do. I do not submit to your law is tantamount to giving him the middle finger. I will not make that crass gesture. You know how crude and crass that is and how disdainful it is. Can you imagine? It's bad enough to do it to a fellow human being and yet to do that in the face of God, but that's the essence of sin. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant that sin is, that particular sin, if it's contrary to the will of God, is saying to God, no, no, don't tell me what to do. No. And you say, well, it was just a little sin. There are no little sins with God. Because all sin in its nature and essence is rebellion to him. It's a refusal to submit to his rightful reign and rule over your life. And I want you to think of it that way. Whenever you choose to sin, 
and the devil is tempting you to do it, and you say to yourself, I shouldn't do this, I know I shouldn't do it, but I so want to do this, I'm going to do it. Stop and say to yourself, you, in that moment, if you proceed, are giving God the middle finger. You're telling him, no, don't control my life, no law for me. Now, did I make that up? Look at the text. See it again. The practice of sinning, those who make a practice of sinning, practice lawlessness. Sin is anomia. So it's very, very, very serious. And all sin is very, very serious. It may be on the earthly level that the consequences vary in terms of how significant but in terms of standing before God, there is no such thing as an insignificant sin because the essence of it is rebellion. So that's what I wanted to say about verse 4. Now, just, I think I kept calling it verse 5, and I'm sorry if I did that. Verse 4. But no, let's take, let's take a quick look at verse 5. John says, You know that he appeared to take away sins. Literally in the Greek, the sins. Now who's he? Those are kinds of questions you should ask when you read the Bible. Who's he? Well, you have to go back just a little further. And when you come to the latter part, or the middle of verse 2, which Pastor Keith helpfully preached on last week, 28 through 3, it says... Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, he's, he's going to come. Now, when he appears, well, clearly that's Jesus. And back in verse 28, it says, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. And Pastor Keith prepared us how to not be shaken in the day of judgment. Who's going to appear? Jesus is going to appear. So the he of our text, the antecedent to the he, is the one who has appeared once and who will appear again. It's clearly Jesus, the Son of God. And he tells us in verse 5 why Jesus came to earth. You know, the Piper sermon was really wonderful. I urge you to listen to it. Uh, he preached it 20, 20 years ago and it was his Christmas gift to his congregation. And he said why Jesus came to earth. This is it. And it tells us something wonderful here, doesn't it? It says, you know that he appeared. Why? Why did Jesus appear, according to verse 5? You, you look at the text. Why did he appear? To take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Of course he's going to want to deal with sin because he himself is sinless and he came the first time to take away sins. Now, is he talking there about taking away our sinful propensity to sin? Is he talking about changing our heart? Is he talking about sanctification, making progress in grace and becoming more like Jesus and so forth? I don't think he is. But it's in our text, and we're going to come to it in a few minutes when we get to verse 9. 
He's talking about the removal of the obstacle between us and God so that we can be reconciled to him. He's talking really about that which provides justification. A justification, just a big word for God pronouncing us righteous and us being acceptable in his sight because of what Jesus did for us. That's what he's talking about. And if you go back just for a second to chapter 2 and verse uh, 2, he reminds us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And propitiation is just a sophisticated, fancy word for uh, satisfaction, the one who satisfied the wrath of God toward us because of our sin. He propitiated the wrath of God. Do you understand that? You, you have to at least understand the concept. You don't have to know and understand that word. You have to understand the concept or you're not a Christian. A Christian is a person who has come to see, I am sinful and in horrible trouble before a holy God who has no other option but to damn me to hell forever because he's not going to set aside his justice for me. His justice has to be satisfied. And it's either going to be satisfied in me by going to hell forever or it's going to be satisfied in Christ who took the wrath that we all deserve. That's how Jesus made a satisfaction. He propitiated the wrath of God. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had to forsake him or we would have to be forsaken. And John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus, you remember what his words were? You could, if this was a class, I'd ask somebody to answer, but he said, behold, behold, look, look. This is not another lamb. This is the lamb of God. This is the final one, which all of the lambs throughout the Old Testament were typically preparing us for. Behold, the lamb of God. Who what, John? Who takes away the sins of the world. He removes them from us so that we can be reconciled. His justice is satisfied through what Jesus did. I think that's what John has taught me. The commentators and the preachers I listened to all agreed with that as well. So why did Jesus come? He came to take away sins. See, he, he has an issue with sin. And if we're ever to be right with God, our sins are going to have to be taken away. So this one who was sinless took them away. Now, <clears throat> I'm just saying to you, dear people, that sin and Christianity are incompatible. You see it, I think it's the title of the sermon there, uh, but it's certainly on our sheet. The incompatibility, Christianity and sin, utterly incompatible. Now, let's just quickly take a look at... Um, Verse 6. Verse 6 says, No one, and we already saw in everyone, it's all inclusive. No one, this is exclusive. No one who abides in him. And remember, as Pastor Keith preached last Sunday, if you were here, um, he preach on verse 28, and now little children, abide in him. Abide in him. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, what do you think that means? You could answer by saying it means that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And it means that no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. That's what it means. But to put it bluntly, he's simply saying in the first part of verse 6 that true Christians cannot sin the way they used to sin. Because a Christian is someone who abides in Christ. And he's also saying, when you just flip it a little bit and look at the second part of it, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. So, dear people, dear, dear friends, are you a true Christian? Does honesty require you to say, yeah, I'm still keeping on sinning. I'm still sinning. And you don't mean by that I still have sin in my life and I struggle with it. You mean I'm still abandoned to sinfulness. It's my master. Well, then you need to agree with John that I've never seen him. I don't know him. I, I appreciated the songs that J. Paul led us in today about seeing. I appreciated that. You've just never seen him. Oh, you know some stuff about him, but you've never seen him. Because if you see him, you'll fall down. And if you get to know him, you will love him. And he will be your all in all. Let's just take a real quick excursion to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, let me show you this. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chap, uh, chapter 4, actually. 2 Corinthians 4, okay? Just want you to see this real quickly. This is about seeing. And in verse 3, Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. So if you haven't seen the beauty of the gospel, you're perishing. In their case, in your case, if you fit that category, the God of this world, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's what he said at the dawn of creation, let there be light. That God has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And until you see him and know him, you're utterly lost. And John is saying the practice of sin proves that you haven't seen him or haven't known him. Let's look quickly at verse 7. Notice how it starts out. Little children. And this is a, a favorite expression of John's. I love it. It teaches us 
something as pastors, doesn't it? How to be affectionate, kind, tender-hearted, even toward those for whom we're concerned. Little children, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. And no one includes you. Don't let yourself deceive you. Don't deceive yourself with regard to what I'm about to say. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Don't be deceived about that. Now, there's a possibility here that actually John is looking back to verse 6. You know, because it could, it could be read like this. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you about that. Or maybe he has reference to what he's about to say. Don't be deceived about this. But people who are truly Christians practice righteousness. Do you want to know if you're righteous or not? Not in, not in a self-righteousness that pays for your sins, but a truly changed person who wants to live according to God's will. You want to know if you're that kind of a person or not? Then, well, look at your life. Is your life wrapped up in, in living for God and pleasing Him and doing what He wills? When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. When we do His good will, He abides with us still. You know, it's all about trusting and obeying. And so, the emphasis that I want to place on this before I quickly go to verse 8 is, dear souls, listen, this is for everybody. This isn't just for the people that I may be concerned about or wonder about. This is for everybody. Let no one deceive you. Let's just start with that. One of the questions that I put on the back of the handout here was, Paul tells us to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. Test yourselves, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. And Peter says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. And I say, what should that look like? Does it make you mad to know that the Bible asks you to not assume that you're a Christian and every now and then go back and say, look, I'm going to start all over. I'm going to test myself whether I'm really in the faith. I'm going to make my calling and election sure. How do you do that? You go to passages like 1 John and you say, has there been a radical change in my life with regard to sin and righteousness, to sin and righteousness? So it's the two sides of the same coin. And if you have to doubt that, then you should doubt your true conversion. But don't be angry when a faithful pastor like the faithful word of God calls us to examine ourselves and to see whether we're in the faith. I'm worried about professing Christians who don't give the evidence of grace. And so was John. So let no one deceive you. And then in verse 8, the whole point is, whoever practices righteousness, excuse me, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Who's your spiritual father? If, you, if you're dominated by sin and you haven't had a radical change in your relationship to sin, you really can't pray what we prayed this morning. Our father, my father, who's in heaven, 
you should hear God say, don't you call me your father. You should hear Jesus say to you, as he said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, you are of your father, the devil. That's what John is telling us. He's saying, if you practice sin, you're of the devil. He's been sinning from the beginning. When did he first sin? When he was in heaven and rebelled against God and had an insurrection and was cast out of heaven. And ever since then, he's been sinning and leading people to sin. And his first triumph on earth is getting Adam and Eve and all of us who were represented by them to fall into sin. That's what, that's what this is about. But you know, the good news is that the reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And what are the works of the devil? Well, I mentioned some of them. The devil is the kingpin of sin. He's the first creature who ever sinned. He was expelled from heaven. He's been sinning from the beginning. He continues to sin. And he leads this world into terrible sinfulness. We have a fallen world. Watch the news if you don't think man is sinful. He polluted God's perfect creation. Morally, he's done damage physically to the creation and to our bodies that have disease and death and intellectually. We don't think right without God's illumination. He's just wreaking havoc wherever he goes. That's what he does. He's been sinning from the beginning, but Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and he did that on the cross. So really, this passage tells us two reasons why he appeared, doesn't it? I've already touched on the first one, but really, this is the second one, and the second one, I think, does have to do with delivering us from the power of sin, because it says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now listen, immediately on the heels of that comes verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So in the outline again, there is uh, the drawing of attention to the fact that we do not, true Christians do not, and they cannot keep on sinning, but now the reason is given to us we do not keep on sinning if we're true Christians because God's seed abides in us. And that, by the way, is what enables us to abide in him, God's seed. What is God's seed? Well, in the context, it's clearly, I believe, the new birth. It's the nature of God himself because immediately on the heels of this, for God's seed abides in him, it says he cannot keep on sinning because you can't keep on sinning because what? Because you have been born of God. You have the seed of God. The seed of God is at least the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. That principle of life, you have been born again. You cannot keep on sinning. I just want to say it again. You cannot keep on sinning. It's a fact that you won't keep on sinning, but the emphasis of verse 9 is that you cannot keep on sinning. Does it say that or not? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot 
keep on sinning. Why? Because he's born of God. He's been radically changed. He has the divine nature dwelling within him in the person of the Holy Spirit changing his life. Slowly, to be sure, but really. And if that, pardon the grammar, ain't happening, you ain't a Christian. God progressively delivers us from the power of sin by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the irony is that the more he works on it, the more we feel, the more sinful we feel. The more sinful we feel ourselves to be. Got to quit. Verse 10 is just a summary. It just says, look, you can look at all of humanity and you'll see there's only two categories. There are those who are the children of God and there are those who are the children of the devil. And whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God. So as we, as we sit here, as I stand here, and as I close, and I, I'll invite the worship team to come up right now. Please realize that every single one of us is either a child of God or a child of the devil. And it all comes down to your relationship to sin and whether or not, and your relationship to righteousness and whether or not God has done a massive work in your life to where now you hate sin and you're trying to fight it for the, for the glory of God. Not to earn your salvation, but to be like Jesus. Or are you just giving yourself over to sin and every day of your life giving God the middle finger? There's a lot of grace in this passage. Jesus died to destroy the works of the devil. And I believe, and your pastors believe, he's destroying those works in your lives. But there's more of them that need to be destroyed. But they're going to be destroyed. And not all of them will be destroyed in this life. But they will all be destroyed when we see him at his return. For we will be like him. And that's when we will enter into sinless perfection. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity of this passage. Oh, Lord, help us to be honest and humble before it. Help us to do what you told us through Paul and Peter to examine ourselves and also to make our calling and election sure. Thank you for the clarity of 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Thank you for your wonderful work, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving the Holy Spirit to all those who know you, which empowers them to do war with sin. Thank you, Jesus, for paying for all the sins that we will yet commit. Thank you for the comfort of knowing they will not ultimately separate us from you because they've been atoned for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.